Gracious Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much, Father, for the privilege that we have to open up your Holy Scripture. Thank you that because of your Son, Jesus Christ, and his atoning death for us, that by faith we can come and we can hear life-giving words. Help us, Lord, to appropriate those things that we hear, that it would change our perspective and view of you, our attitudes, the way that we speak, the way that we live, that we may experience spirit-empowered change today, and that we may aggressively pursue holiness in the Christian life. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, turning your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. We've been looking the last few weeks at verses 5 through 11. And so this is part 3 of a series that we've been in the middle of titled Christ-Centered Living and Aggressive Mortification. Christ-Centered Living and Aggressive Mortification. So the other day I sat down with my little uh, Chloe, who's four years old, my little toddler, and she loves a couple of different types of cartoons, but one of the ones that she really likes are Mickey Mouse cartoons, and uh, she really enjoys those. And so I sat down to watch one of these episodes of uh, Mickey Mouse cartoon, and it struck me, I remembered the particular episode from childhood, Um, just having watched it as a kid and then as a teenager and then over the years again, and the episode really uh, revolves around the, the theme of Donald Duck is very envious and jealous of Mickey. And so throughout this whole cartoon, he's debating in his mind, Donald Duck is, as to how he's going to um, cause grief to Mickey and get the upper hand over Mickey, and uh, whether he's going to do good or harm to them, to him. And uh, what was interesting is that there are uh, two additional characters, in addition to Mickey and Donald, um, two many characters that keep appearing on the left shoulder and the right shoulder of Donald Duck. One of them on his left shoulder is this mini Donald Duck uh, red devil figure who has a pitchfork in his hand and a weird tail and is basically trying to influence Donald Duck to do evil to Mickey Mouse. And then on his right shoulder, constantly appearing is this other mini Donald Duck figure uh, who is this angelic being um, and he's got a halo around his, uh, over his head. And so they're constantly throughout this episode trying to influence Donald to do evil or to do good to Mickey Mouse. And so the question, of course, throughout the whole episode is who's going to influence Donald more, right? And uh, it struck me as I was watching that, this is the way that many people think about the Christian life. Um, that the Christian is this helpless victim of two opposing forces, Two natures in one person, sort of a spiritual schizophrenic is the believer who sometimes the bad in you will win and sometimes the good in you will win and and you have no say in that. And the only question becomes who will influence you more, bad or good? And yet simply, this is not the case, beloved, in the Christian life, is it? When you became a Christian, you became a new man. You became a new woman in Christ. The Christian is a new creation. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, these words, If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. All things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 15, Paul says, Neither is circumcision or uncircumcision anything but a new creation. And that is, of course, in Christ Jesus. Galatians 2.20, you know this verse. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. When you and I become a Christian, we are a new person. We see this in Colossians, do we not? In these constant, these pictures that Paul keeps bringing before the Colossians. In chapter 2, verse 12, he says that the believer has been buried with Christ, in union with Christ. In chapter 2, verse 20, we have died with Christ. In chapter 3, verse 3, we've died with Christ. Chapter 3, verse 1 of Colossians, we have been raised up with Christ. All of these picture a real change that has taken place in the life of the believer by faith in Jesus Christ. 
But then you say, okay, Pastor Kempis, but if all of this means that I am a new person, then why do I still sin? Why do I still struggle with sin in my Christian life? And the answer that Scripture gives us is our flesh. Our flesh. And I want you to just keep your finger there in Colossians chapter 3 and turn back a few pages to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. Here in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 and following, Paul really uh, puts forth the ongoing struggle and the fight between the Spirit of God and what he calls the flesh. Galatians 5.16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. And it's interesting there at the end of that verse 16, and you will not, there's a double negative there, you will not not carry out the desire of the flesh, or you will absolutely not carry out the desire of the flesh when you submit yourself to the Spirit leading in your life. Verse 17, For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And then he goes on to describe, in verses 19-21, through 21, the deeds of the flesh. Such as, verse 19, immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, says Paul, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those are the deeds of the flesh. But notice verse 22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against these things, against such things, there is no law. So there's this ongoing struggle between the Spirit of God indwelling the believer and what Paul calls the flesh. But there's been real life transformation. Look at verse 24. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. There's this ongoing struggle of the believer between the Spirit living within us and what Paul calls the flesh. And yet there's a real change that has taken place whereby in conversion the Spirit has come to give us life and now indwells the believer empowering us to pursue holiness. But the question is, what does Paul mean by the flesh? If this is such an important thing to understand, that that's why I struggle in the Christian life, still in my pursuit of holiness, what is the flesh? Well, it can have different, a different meaning depending on context. For example, it can have the meaning of our physical body, such as in Galatia, or Romans chapter 6 and verse 19. Paul says, I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. And there he's speaking of the physical body. But it can also have the meaning or have this theological sense that means that part of the believer that tends to live independent of the Spirit of God. Whenever we are walking in the flesh, we are walking independent of the Spirit of God. So that living in the flesh refers essentially to self-effort. The pursuit of something on our own efforts, based upon our own works. In fact, in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 3, Paul asks the Galatians this question. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? In other words, why are you seeking to be justified by the works of the law? If the Spirit has given you life, then you must be yielding yourself to the Spirit of God. That's the only way you can pursue holiness, not in accordance with the flesh, independent of the Spirit of God. There's also a third meaning of the flesh. And it refers to our, our humanness or human weakness. To that natural propensity that we have still to sin. When we're not living in submission to and guided by the Spirit of God. It is that part of us that has not been redeemed yet. Not just speaking of our bodies, but our thoughts, our mind. Those faculties that still are tainted with sin. We know this in our own Christian experience, do we not? That we fight to have Christ-centered thoughts, holy thoughts, 
not sinful dwellings, if you will. We fight to speak words that are edifying toward other people. Not sinful words that tear down and demean others and are condescending. We fight to keep the right priorities in life. There is this tension that we're constantly experiencing because of what Paul calls the flesh. Paul felt this tension himself, did he not? You've read Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 25, where essentially Paul is saying, I'm a believer and I want to do what is right. However, I have this thing called the flesh that makes it difficult to obey God. The things that I don't want to do, I do. And the things that I want to do, I don't do. And he says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He ends chapter 7. And then into chapter 8, it is all about life in the Spirit. The Spirit of God empowering us to live the Christian life. Paul experienced that tension, the tension that every believer experiences. So what is the difference, beloved, then, between a believer and an unbeliever? It is this. Christ has delivered us from our own, from our, the power and the, and the influence of sin in our lives. The believer... By the, by the work of God, has been rescued from God's wrath and has, He has been delivered from the dominating power and influence of sin. There is a new boss in town, if you will. A new master in our own hearts. That is the Spirit of God. And Christ now, pertaining to the Christian, is to be the dominant person in our hearts and our lives. But as we've been seeing in Colossians chapter 3 and other texts, this doesn't mean, oh Lord Jesus, take the desire for sin and sin itself away. I'm going to take a spiritual nap, if you will. No, God says to us, you must get in the game. You must get in the fight and pursue aggressively to slay the sins of your flesh. To put aside, strip off as in filthy old clothing, those things, those sinful tendencies which characterized you before coming to know Jesus Christ. That's what Paul has been saying to them in in Colossians chapter 3. To engage their sin on two fronts. On the negative side, in verses verses 5 through 11, they are to put to death sexual sins and then discard social sins that affect the Christian community and that are harmful to them personally. Personally. And then on the positive side, in verses 12 through 17, they are to clothe themselves with the right Christ-like attire that matches their position in Jesus Christ. Now, I told you that in verses 5 through 11, we are called to obey two overarching commands in this fight that we may abandon the old life and grow in Christ. And these commands are are beautiful and powerful metaphors, verses 5 and 8, that call us to slay sin and strip ourselves of those sinful desires and activities that characterized us before coming to know Jesus Christ. And the point that Paul is making in these two commands is this. Since you are a new man, since you are a new woman in Christ, act like it. Live out in practice who you are in position. Live it out. Flesh it out. We saw the first command in verses 5 through 7. It was this, Christian, put your sin to death. And we've been looking at the second command in verses 8 through 11. Christian, discard your sin. Let's look at verse 5. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, to impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, and have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and freeman, but Christ is all and in all. The command there in verse 8 to put them all aside, as we saw last week, is this idea of taking off old, dirty, filthy clothing. And this filthy clothing is really metaphorical for the social sins of our past. Sins, beloved, listen to me. 
That if we are not aggressively in the power of the Spirit, stripping ourselves of, are harmful to us and to the Christian community as well. To our unity and our harmony as brothers and sisters in Christ. Now we've seen different aspects of this command. And we began looking at the content of this command in verse 8. And if you remember, there is a progression here in verse 8 from the root cause to the fruit of the social sins. In other words, as we saw last week, abusive speech and slanderous speech that harms others and hurts others begins in the heart with a settled swelling of anger. And as we said last week, anger that is largely that largely comes from unmet expectations and unfulfilled desires in our hearts that are not met by others. And even even holy expectations, beloved. Good things that we expect from others. Good desires that we may expect from others. Things that are biblical can become an opportunity for us to sin in our own hearts when we don't get what we want from that person. Whether it be in our marriage, from our spouse, our children, or even as brothers and sisters in Christ. And there's a swelling of anger that can arise in our own hearts. This internal anger, look at verse 8, when not dealt with, expresses itself in wrath. Or outbursts of anger is the idea there. This wrath, if not laid aside then, can settle into a malicious state which looks to harm someone else. Malice. This malicious attitude then, not dealt with, will express itself in destructive slander. Which is the defamation of someone's character and someone's reputation, whether subtle or explicit. As well as, verse 8, abusive speech. Abusive speech which harms and hurts others rather than builds them up. So you want to deal with issues in your life, sins of the tongue, such as abusive speech or slander. What is the key? The key is to deal with our hearts, right? To deal with our hearts. Jesus said the mouth speaks out of that which fills the what? The heart. The mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. Mastery of our mouths, beloved, begins with mastery of our hearts, if you will. So we must learn to deal with our own sinful, angry hearts. And we ought to be asking ourselves, whenever there is an issue with another brother or sister in Christ, ask yourself in private before the Lord, does the Bible address this particular issue that I'm angry about? Why am I angry and does the Bible address it? And if indeed it does address it, then that's an opportunity for us to come to our brother and sister in Christ and be able to address that issue that has caused consternation in our own hearts. We should not sweep sin under the rug. If it's biblical and if it's there, we should confront it. However, there are times where it's not a biblical issue. And perhaps you are angry or upset or there's consternation in your own heart because of a perceived um, uh, fault from somebody else toward you. In those cases, beloved, maybe 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8 is instructive for us to follow. Where Peter says, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, for love covers a multitude of sins. He's not saying sweeps sins under the rug. Love covers a multitude of sins. There are those times when we perceive that somebody has sinned against us in a particular way, and it turns out that indeed that wasn't an offense that that person meant to, to harm us w- with. In those cases, it is very, very important for us to allow love to cover that particular sin. Now listen, if you do confront a particular person in sin, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 is very instructive for us, isn't it? Galatians 6.1 says, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. What is the goal in any type of confrontation of sin? It's restorative and redemptive, isn't it? It's for the purpose of reconciliation with that other individual. And it must be done with an attitude of gentleness, a mindset of humility, A mindset of of humility that is derived from us constantly comparing ourselves in the light of the majesty and the glory of God rather than in comparison to other people. That leads to lowliness of mind in light of who we are to the glory of God. In turn, that leads to gentleness in our lives, to meekness, a meek approach to another brother or sister, knowing that we too are sinners as well. And were it not for the grace of God in our life, we would be in the same sin as well. 
So we must be addressing these things with one another, but doing it in a godly manner. Now notice in verse 9, there's one further vice that comes from a heart of anger. Paul says in verse 9, do not lie to one another. This is a present tense command. Stop lying to one another is the idea here. And this is not limited to speaking falsehood, but also to deceptive actions, or even more so a deceptive lifestyle in contrast to a life of truthfulness and integrity. Listen, a life characterized, beloved, by truthfulness is so countercultural, isn't it? So countercultural. Think about it. Our, our culture in which we live, it is saturated with deception, is it not? Saturated. Just put on, just be exposed to social media just for a few minutes. Turn on your television. And there are lies all over the place, right? If you want happiness, drink this type of beer. As opposed to that other type of beer, right? Because this type of beer is going to lead to some good things in your life as opposed to the other one. And the only thing that you should be driven by is how good that beer tastes. They don't tell you the truth that thousands and thousands of people have died because of alcoholism. All you got to do is, be, is, is look at our world. A world saturated with deception. Buy this kind of car. Buy this kind of house because it will lead to your happiness and that you, you will be fu- an, a fulfilled American, right? And Christians buy into that as well. Buy the latest toy. And if you buy the latest toy or the latest gadget, right? The new iPhone that comes out, that will lead to your happiness. Lies, 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 beloved. We have a, a culture that is built on a foundation of deception and lies, And we must be careful as believers. Look at politics. There are many promises being made right now by the front runners of the presidential election, right? But you're going to see in the years ahead, no matter who is elected, lie after lie after lie and promise after promise after promise, broken, beloved. That's our culture in which we live. In our educational system. I was talking to one of my kids the other day. In the, high, in the high school system, the kids are being told about evolution and portraying evolution. as it's a, it's a fact. It's provable. It's reliable. When in fact it is fictional. It is not provable. It is not reliable. But kids are being told that evolution is the origin of things, right? In an effort to take God out of all of this. We live in a culture, beloved, saturated with deception, And in contrast to all of this, Christians are to be people of the truth and truthfulness. In fact, listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. And in that context, he's talking about the unbeliever. Don't conduct yourself in this manner, in the futility of their mind being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Paul says to the Ephesian believers, don't walk according to your old former manner of life, according to the pattern of this world in the futility of uh, people walk in the futility of their mind they're darkened in their understanding they're excluded from the life of god godless ignorant choosing ignorance hardening their hearts instead verse 20 of ephesians 4 says this but you in contrast to that former manner of life you did not learn christ in this way Beloved, listen to me. You as a believer sitting in here, there was a point when you had a collision with the risen Christ. And God changed you from within. And you are called to be different than the world around you and to conduct yourself and think differently than the world. Not embrace the ideologies and the philosophical fortresses of our society around us and not follow after the priorities or the agendas of the world around us. We have learned Christ differently, have we not? But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him. And he says this, just as truth is in Jesus. Truth is in Jesus. We've come to know he who is the personification of truth, beloved. 
John 14, 6 says that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. What does this mean except that Jesus is the great reality? He is reliable. He is dependable. You can trust His person and His claims, beloved, because He is the truth. He is the truth. And as believers, we need to be truth tellers, standing for the truth. In contrast to a wicked society characterized by falsehood and deception and lies, we need to follow the author and perfecter of our faith who is the truth. He is the truth. Can I encourage us that we be not Christians who rather than naively believing the lies should live in discernment, examining everything carefully, beloved. Don't just take things at face value. I marvel in my own life and in the lives of many believers how naively we, we have, what a naive outlook we have towards everything going on in our society around us. And we're easy prey to Satan and his lies. God calls us to walk in discernment, beloved. Looking at the Word of God and knowing the Word of God and being able to discern between what is good and what is evil. Isn't that what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 21-22? through 22? He says to the Thessalonians, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. We need to be Christians, beloved, who are walking wisely. Don't be the proverbial fool in Proverbs who naively looks at everything around him or her and believes everything out in the world and acts like everything is truth. No, no, no. We have to take everything and filter it through the truth of the Word of God. Amen? Now listen, Paul could have simply said, do not lie. But instead he says, look at verse 9. Do not lie to one another, he says. There is this communal and corporate importance to this command as well. That as Christians, we are one church. We are one body. We are one family. And our relationship should be characterized by truthful speaking to one another. That's how Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25, where he exhorts believers, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor. And then he gives the reason why. For we are members of one another. In other words, we're interconnected. We are a new community in Christ. And we should be known by truthful speaking toward one another. He puts it that way in Ephesians 4, 15, and 16, that we should be devoted to speaking the truth and love to one another, that we may grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ. As a community of believers, beloved, we should be known by truthful speaking toward one another. Unfortunately, that doesn't happen in the church many times. Oftentimes, instead of speaking the truth to one another in love, we just, because we don't want to see issues, or we don't want to have a turmoil between one another, we sweep something under the rug instead of coming to one another. That is also deceptive behavior as well, when we withhold the truth from one another. But we must do it in gentleness and humility and love, right? Now notice in the middle of verse 9 the basis for the command. The basis for the command. He says this, Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Here is the basis for discarding all of the sins of verse 5 and verse 8. And in short, he says once again, it is your new life in Christ. Since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self. You are positionally in a different place before God by faith in Jesus Christ. Actively slay the sins of the flesh. Discard of the old activities that characterize you prior to coming to faith in Christ. Paul constantly, throughout Colossians and other places, others, other epistles, grounds his exhortation to holiness and obedience, beloved, in the work that God has already done for us in Jesus Christ as a propeller to holiness and obedience. Aggressive holiness and obedience. Look at verse 7. He says, And in them, in those evil practices of verse 5, you also once walked when you were living in them. 
He grounds their discarding of the old practices on the fact that they are no longer that old person. There's been a fundamental change in their nature, in their regeneration. The old self has now ceased to exist. The old practices are no longer dominant in our lives as believers. Therefore, we are called to live in holiness and obedience, beloved. Now notice the goal of all of this. The goal in verse 10. He says, And have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge, according to the image of the one who created him. In short, you know what the goal is of this pursuit of holiness? It is conformity to Christ, isn't it? You want to know a beautiful truth about every Christian? You and I, beloved, who are in Christ? We are in a continual process of God renewing us. Renewing us into conformity to Jesus Christ. And we know how that process of renewal takes place, right? Romans chapter 12 and verse 2 says this. Listen to Paul's words to the Romans. Romans 12 verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And then he says this, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. You know that word in chapter 12, verse 2? Transformed is, from, is the word from which we get our word metamorphosis. A change from one stage to another. And how does that change take place, beloved? But by the renewing of our minds. By means of what? By means of the Word of Christ, right? You know, we make such a big deal here at Calvary Bible Church about you getting in the Word of God. About you saturating your minds with the Scriptures. About biblical preaching. About sitting under, under, under biblical preaching and teaching. About getting involved in small groups where you're speaking the truth of the Word of God to one another in the context of biblical relationships. About having a daily, healthy, daily, consistent intake of the Word of God. Why do we do that? Just so that you can clock in and clock out and say, I'm a spiritual Christian because I spent 10 minutes in in reading the Word and I don't remember anything I, I read, but at least I did it. And I spent some time in prayer, but I don't even remember what I said to the Lord. No, we encourage you to saturate your mind with the Word of God, beloved, for worship, so that you might come to know your God in a greater way and His infinite majesty and glory in your life, that you may live well under your trials and your sufferings and fight your sin, as well as so that it could propel you to holiness. Because the more you expose your mind to the Word of God, the more you grow in knowledge of Christ, right? And the more we have our minds saturated with the knowledge of Christ, the more our Christ-centered mindset impacts our behavior and our conduct and our priorities in this world. So we must have daily exposure to the Word of God. That's how the renewing of the mind takes place, beloved. Now listen, this renewal is not so that we could be better people. So that we could be a part of some elite group in the church. No, I want you to notice. He says in verse 10 that you are being renewed to a true knowledge. Verse 10. According to the image of the one who created him. He's talking about Christ. Conformity to Christ. There is a very specific goal in mind in this renewal. God is renewing us that we may be conformed to the image of his son beloved. That's the goal. That's the goal. Not to create some kind of elite Christianity or elite Christian culture where some are better than others in this church. No. We're all seeking to glorify God by becoming more and more conformed to the image of His precious Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. That is our goal. That word image there is the word from which we get our word icon. It's already been used in Colossians 1.15 where Paul said Christ is the image of the invisible God. And what he meant there is that Christ shares the same essence of the Father. That as the Father is God, so is Christ. Christ is the image of God, and we who are believers are being conformed into the image of Christ, not in the same way that Christ is the image of God the Father, for we're never going to share in God's divinity or Godhood in the same way that Christ does, but we become like Christ in character, do we not? Like our precious Savior. A comforting truth. 
You want to know something awesome? Something comforting? You may be in a daily battle, beloved, against sin as I am. But beloved, if you are committed to walking in loving obedience to God's word, he will conform you into the image of his son as you aggressively pursue holiness in the power of the spirit. He will accomplish his work in you. Keep fighting in the power of the spirit, beloved. Paul said to the Philippians in Philippians chapter one, verse six, I am confident of this very thing that he, God, who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Pastor Kempis, is that a sure thing? Yes, it is. As sure as the word of God is sure, beloved. As sure as the character of God is sure. He will complete his work in you. You ever hear the unbreakable chain of the believer's salvation? of God's working in us, this unbreakable chain in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Go there with me. Romans 8, verse 28. 828, of course, is one of the most quoted verses for us as believers, such a comfort to us. Romans 8.28, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. What a comfort, huh? That to those who love God, to those called according to his purpose, God will cause all things to work together for good for us. But don't stop reading there, beloved. Keep reading. Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew... There's the first link in this unbreakable chain. He's foreknown the believer. He also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. There's a second unbreakable link. He has predestined us to become conformed to the image of his son so that we would be the firstborn among many brethren. But don't stop there. There's a third link. Verse 30. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also what? justified and those whom he justified he also glorified there's the unbreakable chain beloved of god's plan and purpose for you christian from before the foundation of the world and he will finish it there's no breaking of any of these chains in your life what god has purpose to do in your life he will accomplish for god himself has designed it and forged this plan upon the anvil of his sovereign will will he not accomplish it He will. He will. You know, I'm thankful. I'm so grateful as I look back at my life. I'm not the same sinful little wretch that I was 35 years ago. I'm not the same sinful wretch that I was 25 years ago. God, by His grace, has conformed me more and more into the image of Christ. And now as I get older and white hair is coming at speeds I never thought imaginable, there is a comfort that 2 Corinthians 4.16 brings to me. Where Paul says, though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. See, the goal of every Christian, beloved, is conformity to Christ. In fact, this is the goal that we saw in Paul's ministry just a few months ago in Colossians 1, 28 through 29, didn't we? Colossians 1, 28, Paul says, this is what ministry comes down to right here. Colossians 1, 28, we proclaim him who is Christ. We proclaim Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom. And here it is, so that we may present every man, excuse me, every man complete in Christ. Paul says, for this purpose, that I may present every man complete in Christ, also I labor, I work to the point of exhaustion, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. All of Paul's efforts in ministry are to exalt Christ by seeing people come into greater conformity and likeness to Jesus Christ. That is the goal, even of Christian ministry, beloved. Structures, programs that we create here at Calvary are not to exalt those things in and of themselves. They are structures and programs and things that we implement for the purpose of, of exalting Christ so that, so that we may come into greater conformity to Jesus Christ. That you may be more like Jesus. That I may be more like Jesus Christ. That is our goal. Christ-centered living then focuses upon this goal. But when we lose sight of it, beloved, and live... In sinful, unrepentant sin, we forfeit the blessings of God, do we not? Listen, God wants you to experience a taste of the eternal blessings found in Jesus Christ in this lifetime. 
But when you and I walk in unrepentant sin, and we're not slaying our sin, according to verse 5, and we're not stripping ourselves of our sin, verse 8, when we're not doing those things, we bring upon ourselves devastating consequences, do we not? Life in Christ should bring peace. But unrepentant sin brings the absence of peace. Life in Christ brings joy to the believer. But unrepentant sin brings an absence of joy. Life in Christ leads to humble service, a desire to serve others. But unrepentant sin leads to a sense of uselessness or proud selfishness where we're all driven and motivated by our own needs rather than the needs of others. Life in Christ leads to joy and the satisfaction of of sacrificing for God and for others. But living in unrepentant sin, beloved, leads to indifference towards others and their needs and estrangement from God and from our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Life in Christ leads to the joy and the satisfaction of holiness and closeness to the Lord. But unrepentant sin leads to an absence of spiritual sensitivity to our sin, beloved to blindness to our sin, to the loss of spiritual understanding and insight. And yes, our salvation is secure in Jesus Christ, but we may forfeit in our experience in this lifetime the joy and the satisfaction of experiencing a taste of the eternal blessings that we have in Jesus Christ. And so we must not live in sin. You say, oh, Kempis, that's where I am. That's where I am as a believer. What can I do? What can I do? Beloved, repent. Repentance. Repentance. Confess your sin. Ask sin to the Lord. Ask for His forgiveness. If you are a believer, the answer to you asking God to forgive you in Christ will always be what? Yes. Yes. Repentance, confession, asking God to forgive you. And the resolve by the power of the Spirit to forsake your sin and walk in holiness is the pathway for you as a believer to to, to live a life of joy, beloved. Of experiencing a taste of the blessings that will be yours in Christ Jesus for eternity. If you are not a Christian, it is the same for you. Repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Plead with God that He may forgive you and forsake your sinful lifestyle. Trust Jesus Christ who came to seek and save lost sinners like yourself and like myself. Put your faith in the only atoning sacrifice for your sins found in Jesus Christ. Come to God broken, confessing that apart from Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross, you have no hope. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Now notice in verse 11, Finally, the last aspect of this command is the impartiality of the command. The impartiality of the command. And look at what he says. He says, a renewal, and I like that insertion by the New American Standard because it's pointing back to verse 10, to the renewal that we experience unto a true knowledge according to the image of Christ. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew. Literally, there is no Greek and Jew circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. This is very interesting. It almost seems out of place that Paul would make this statement. He makes a statement about the fact that there are no distinctions to be made anymore between Christians. And I think what he means is this. No matter who you were before, you are now a new person. Your identity is in Jesus Christ, regardless of your ethnic background, past religious affiliation, cultural background, social background. You are now in Christ, and that means that you can obey these commands, and you will be blessed with this renewal into conformity to Jesus Christ. There is no distinction anymore in the gospel. Notice what he says in verse 11. In this process of conformity to Christ, there is no distinction between Greek or Jew, he says. Between Greek or Jew. The Jews believe that anyone not Jew were pagan and heathen outside of God's blessings. What does Paul say here? When Greeks or non-Jews come to Christ, they are on equal footing with Jews. There is no Greek or Jew, but your identity is now in Jesus Christ. There's no Greek or Jew. No one stands on higher ground. 
The ground is level at the foot of the cross, if you will. Look at verse 11. There is no distinction between circumcised and uncircumcised. Christ is the only marker that matters. Circumcision was the greatest distinguishing marker of the Jews, which to them set them apart from the Gentile world as God's special covenant people. Galatians 6.15, Paul says, Neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation, he says. Our identity is in Christ. Their identity is now the only unifying marker for Christians, and that identity is found in Jesus Christ. This is such a, a beautiful thing that Paul is pointing out here. Look at verse 11. There's no barbarian or, or Scythian. In Christ, there is no one beyond God's reach. Listen, both of these groups of people were considered by civilized nations to be the least of the least. If the Jews looked down on the Greeks because they weren't Jews, the Greeks looked down on barbarians as the scum of the earth. And not only that, but the Scythians were even worse than the barbarians. They were lower than the barbarians. And Paul is saying here, in Christ, no one is outside of God's reach. Our identity is in Christ. Finally, look at verse 11. There is no slave and freeman. In Christ, all men are equal. Slaves were the lowest of society. Freemen were autonomous and self-governed individuals. Paul says, in Christ, there are no distinctions. They are both equal. Our identity is in Christ. And we're all in the process of being renewed to conformity to Jesus Christ. You know, the gospel is beautifully outrageous. Beautifully outrageous, isn't it? When you look at something like this. I mean, can you imagine... A first century pastor or teacher getting up in, the, in front of the congregation and he was a former barbarian or Scythian and he's now in Christ Jesus and he looks out and there's people from every tongue and nation, Jews sitting with Greeks, barbarians sitting with Scythians, people of social standing with people who are, don't have very, very, very much social standing but poverty stricken and now they're all, as he looks out, one in Jesus Christ and their identity is in Jesus. Wow. Wow. That in the gospel, this is the type of thing that happens. Jews and non-Jews sitting together. Those who before Christ were considered the scum of the earth and, the, and, the, and uncivilized are now sitting with those who were, who were supposedly the elite crowd. Now they're in Christ and the ground is level at the foot of the cross in Jesus Christ. How beautiful that is. Slaves and masters and freemen in church sitting together because they have all put their faith in Jesus and they're all one in Christ. Paul says in Christ, all barriers, divisions, hierarchy of people, cultural, social, or other is completely shattered. We are all equal before God in Christ Jesus. The ground is level at the foot of the cross, beloved. No man stands on higher ground than any other. And in Christ, regardless of your past baggage... You are empowered to overcome your sin, beloved. Empowered. None of these distinctions exist, but notice at the end of verse 11, but Christ is all and in all. This is not some pantheistic statement, but a way to say Christ is the sum and the substance of everything. Isn't that what he has been making as his, his main point in the book of Colossians? Christ is all. Christ is the singular point of their origin. Christ is the one they need for their existence. All things exist for Him. Christ is a sustainer. He's supreme over all things. Christ is all we need. We are complete in Christ. That's been His point. Christ is all. And He adds at the end of verse 11, and in all. Emphasizing that by His Spirit, He dwells in the redeemed regardless of any social or cultural makeup. Paul expresses the same essence, essential idea in Galatians chapter 3, verses 27 and 28, when he says this, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor freeman. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. I love this quote. In the application of God's grace then, Christ engulfs all racial, religious, and cultural differences with His indiscriminating grace. 
Christ is all anyone needs to become a fully welcomed and functioning participant in the new self. Nothing needed, nothing added. Christ is all and in all. Love that. Of course, it requires everything from you, doesn't it? That you surrender your life, live for self-worship and self-idolatry, and bow your knee to the Lord of the universe. It will require everything. Listen, beloved. Stop making excuses about your sin because you were raised in a certain way, because you are from a particular race, because you have a particular social standing. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. We all came in the same way. Your identity is found in nothing else but Jesus Christ. And now whatever differences we have, whether they be cultural or social standing or whatever, they are to be appreciated and they are to lead us to unity in the great bond of union with Jesus Christ. Oh, pastor, but you don't understand my background and the baggage that I carry. God's word says... You are no longer that person. Be holy. Stop saying, I am the way I am because stuff happened to me when I was a kid or I sinned in terrible ways where God can never forgive me. No, God's word says the transforming power of the gospel has made you new. Now be holy in the power of the Spirit of God. Stop saying, oh, my culture is not as prominent as another God's Word says, in Christ there is no more prominent race over another. Be holy in the power of the Spirit of God. Stop saying, oh, oh, pastor. There's so much more that you don't know about me. Listen, if God has saved you in Jesus Christ, He calls you to be holy, beloved. And He's indwelt you with His Holy Spirit so that you are able to do that. You can live a Christ-centered life, aggressively slaying your sin in the power of the Spirit by His grace. Amen? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful to You, Lord, for Your wondrous grace in having changed us from within and having justified us in Jesus Christ. I pray for Your grace that you would continue to help us in the power of the Spirit to be people who are not comfortable living American Christianity, that we would be people who want to be separate from the world and engaging the culture around us with the truth of the Word of God. Father, help us. Help us to be people who are pursuing holiness and seeking to be a testimony in both word and by our holy example to the desperately sick and wicked generation around us. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.